If you have your Bibles, grab them. Daniel chapter 5 is where we're at this morning as we continue to chug through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. We've all probably heard the phrase and used the phrase, the writing is on the wall. We've probably used that, oh, you know, the writing's on the wall. And of course, it means that something bad is about to happen. You know, we might say something like, well, I haven't lost my job yet, but the writing's on the wall. My company just laid off 50 more people. When a professional coach has several losing seasons, as the Carolina Panthers just experienced and was on a current, you know, four-game, five-game losing streak, well, you could say, well, the, the writing was on the wall for that guy. He was no longer the coach of the Carolina Panthers. It means that there are clear signs that a situation is about to change, that it's about to get more difficult, it's about to get unpleasant. The writing is on the wall. That common phrase comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 5, where we see a literal hand writing judgment on the wall. Let's read together. We're going to read all of chapter 5. Stick with me. Try to, try to pay attention because it's a whole big story and we need to hear the whole thing and we might dive into it together. Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. The words of our God, written by Daniel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, say this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, immediately, the fingers of a hand, of a human hand, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the, the enchanters, and the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but... They could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the father of uh, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make it known me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard 
that you can give interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was that of a wild donkey. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tickle, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. And Daniel was clothed with purple and a gold chain was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. You read this, and you see what this king did by the, the offense, by taking the vessels, these things from the Jewish temple that his father had taken over, and he brings these vessels in, and he desecrates them by drinking wine from them and worshiping false gods with them, worshiping the gods of stone, wood, and bronze, and all these things. And when he does this, you're like, dude, what are you doing? Like, how dumb could you be? You look at it and you think, and as Daniel said, he should have known better. He should have known better. You look at it and you think, did your father teach you nothing? Did you learn nothing from all the things that he went through? That after he was proud and God sent him to live like an ox for seven years outside, living like an animal, did you not understand? Do you not remember how God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace? Do you not know that this God is real? That you should have honored him, not desecrated his things and made a mockery of his name, but he does it. And so he sins against God and immediately, it says, immediately when he does this. The handwriting shows up on the wall and God pronounces judgment. When we look at chapter 4 last week and we compare it to chapter 5, we see two very evil, wicked kings. Two different kings, but both evil, both wicked, both bad. 
but yet two different outcomes. And as a result, because of that, two different messages. We compare those two chapters and we have this single message. God's complete pardon for the humble and his sure judgment for the proud. God's complete pardon for the humble and his sure judgment for the proud. But what are we supposed to learn from this story? As you read this story about kings being humbled and being judged, what are we, lowly people, supposed to learn? Well, first, you have to remember, who is this written to? This is not a story or an account written to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians, or to these kings. Rather, it is a story written by the hand of Daniel to his people, to Israel, to the people of God, to serve as a warning. It is a warning of judgment over sin. God gives this warning out of a love for his people and for the sake of his people's future spiritual health and of the future bringing salvation to the world. This warning of the dangers of sins comes in the hopes of protecting their spiritual future. This warning was not only written to Israel, it is also written to us. The New Testament reminds us that all of the stories of the Old Testament were recorded for our benefit. They are intended to serve us and teach us and to warn us. So first, three warnings. Three warnings. Warning number one, sin always leads to judgment. Sin always leads to judgment. If I didn't give a a warning before, this is a really uplifting message. You're welcome. Number one, sin always leads to judgment. So we got to be honest for a moment. No one wants to talk about judgment. It's not sunshiny and rainbows. It's not exciting. No one wants to talk about judgment. We live in a time where we often believe, and kind of our motto as a culture, is that no one can judge me. No one else has the right to judge me for anything I do, no matter what it is. We live in a time where if something is right for me, then you have no right to tell me it's wrong. We're not allowed in good company to tell people they're wrong or that they should not do something. This warning of judgment of sin is particularly striking in our modern culture, a culture that believes truth is relative and that morality is in the eye of the beholder, that morals are up to you. But if sin has no consequences, if there is no judgment, if evil goes unchecked, and if justice never comes, then what of good is God? And of what benefit is his grace? If grace is indeed amazing, as the song says, then it must rescue us from something. And that something that grace rescues us from is highlighted in the words, mene tekel kere. It rescues us from a coming judgment, a coming judgment for sin. This king defiled God's stuff and made a mockery of him while drinking from his vessels and worshiping false gods. The message, the writing on the wall is clear. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and it is given to your enemies because of your sin judgment. I want us to understand a couple fundamental truths at the beginning here. Number one, judgment is good. That's kind of a weird statement. Judgment is good. We, if we lived in a world where there was no judgment and no one to judge, 
it would not only mean that there were no standards of goodness and that evil didn't exist because there is no standard. It would also mean that the wrongs done to you, the injustices done to you, the hurts done to you would go unanswered and no one would care. It would mean that no one mattered and no one would give an account no matter how great or small a wrong done. But the fact that there is a judge and that there is judgment means that there is a standard, that there is such a thing as goodness that actually exists, that there is such a thing as evil, and that evil is not a made-up human construct but is actually a thing. What it means is that wrongs get punished, that all hurts get answered, that injustices do not stand because ultimate justice is coming. For all of our outrage against those who uh, might judge us for wrong action, we actually really want there to be a judgment. Because without it, without wrongs committed against you or someone else, without judgment, they're meaningless and they're forgotten. So judgment is a good thing. Second thing I want us to understand at the top is that though God is judge and will bring judgment, he is also good. To say God is good is a huge statement that we often do not grasp the weight of. To say that God is good is to say that he is ultimately good, that he is perfectly good, that he is a perfect standard, and in him is no deviation from perfect goodness. You know, when you look at other religions, say Islam, for example, you have an Allah in Islam who tells his people that as long as you have more good works than bad works, he will take you into paradise. As long as you've got 51% good, you make the cut. If you've got 90% good, you make the cut. You get in. But what does that mean? Someone with even 90% goodness in their life still means they're 10% bad. And there is there, that means they're, they're actually not good. There's fault in them. And a God who allows 10% of crimes to go unpunished, we would call that here corruption. We do not stand on earth for judges who allow criminals to slide because they received payments on the side or because they thought the criminals were sorry enough. And so why is it that we want a God who would do the same thing and allow evil to go unpunished, allow injustice to stand? It is fascinating that our world today is demanding justice, crying out for justice on so many levels, but yet at the same time that they call for justice, scoff and mock the God who would deliver it. And the reason is because we're not good and our perspective is perverted. Our sense of justice is warped. See, we want justice for the things that matter to us, that we care about. But we want God to call good the things he actually calls evil. Because in reality, we want to be God. And we want to determine right from wrong. And we do not want to face the reality that the things we desire and want to do, sometimes God calls sins that you don't get to do. And so we can either change, deny his existence, we can either change God, we can deny his existence, or try to change what he said in scripture so that we might continue doing the things we want to do that he tells us not to do. And in the face of our rebellion comes a warning from God, sin always results in judgment. 
We don't get to change who he is. We don't get to change what he said. We don't get to not deny him. Sin always results in judgment. And sin always results in judgment because God is good. Because he is good. If he wasn't good, he'd let, he'd let things slide. He'd, let, he'd say, you know what, that wasn't that big a deal. Just come on in. But because he is good, he cannot. He's going to remain good. So here is our first warning. Sin must be judged, and it will be judged. For the wages of sin is death. And the God, the rightful judge, will weigh us on the scales of absolute perfect goodness. And all who have sinned will be found wanting, guilty, and will face judgment. Life is short, hell is hot, and eternity is forever. Sin leads to judgment. There are a few ways that we try to escape that judgment, but they never work. The first way we see King Belshazzar believe he can escape the judgment is through how successful and safe he feels. So the second warning from the text, warning two, the fortress of worldly success will not protect us from the coming judgment. The fortress of worldly success will not protect us from the coming judgment. You see, we read about this party that the king is throwing. All these people are here, and all this wine is being drunk, and all this hooping and hollering. But what is not immediately obvious is that this party is happening in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a siege. Babylon is being attacked by the Medes and the Persians. And in fact, they've been receiving an attack from the Persians for two years at this point. But the king is not worried. The king is not stressed. He feels so incredibly safe behind his walls. His walls that were 350 feet high and 87 feet wide. They were impregnable to any army. Not only that, but they could not be starved because the kingdom was so vast and so big that they grew their food inside the walls, and there was a river that ran through the kingdom under the walls to give them water. They had everything they needed. No one could touch them. And so in the middle of a siege, he throws a party as to mock them. Nothing can touch me. I am all-powerful. He felt untouchable. He was not the first, and he won't be the last, to feel safe behind the walls of human achievement. We hear these names, Tiger Woods, Pete Rose, Ted Haggard, Jimmy Swaggard. The names change, but the message does not. Mene Tekel Parson. Sin results in judgment. You might feel secure in a world where human achievement has made you feel invulnerable. You have everything at your fingertips. You have built something. You are on top of the world. But those who are unrepented before God will ultimately be identified, weighed, and judged. And the cautionary tale of public figures whose scandals ruin their lives. They can become only titillating gossip if we do not hear the echo of Menetico Parson in our own lives. We can look at celebrities who have fallen and we can talk about that and, and, and listen to that on gossip channels, but if we do not hear the warning in our own lives, we've missed the point. We need to read the writing on the wall and understand that for us, no amount of power, no position, no position in the church, no prestige, no peer approval, no wealth, no wisdom can shield us 
from an all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God who brings every dark thing to light and judges sin. We must not feel safe from judgment because our life is going well. And let's put underneath human achievement moral achievement as well. You will not escape the judgment and justice of God because you think you have lived a good life. You will be amazed at how many people tell me they're going to heaven because they've been a good person and tried to follow Jesus the best they can and they've lived good. You have not. You are not perfectly good. Your goodness is worthless in the courtroom of God. If you try to stand before God on account of your goodness and you say, look at all these good things I did. If you are tried on the basis of being a good person, you will be weighed and found wanting and cast into eternal judgment. You are not good. The book of Hebrews reminds us that we are all laid bare before God. It is a striking verse. It says we are laid bare before God, completely exposed. We cannot hide anything from him. He sees us as we are, and we will all give an account for our sin. This king thought he was safe behind his achievement, his walls, and God told him judgment was coming. But yet still, he goes to bed that night, lays his head on his pillow, feeling secure behind the walls that have always kept him safe. But that night, the Persian snuck into the city by way of the river that flowed under the walls. The river that provided such nutrients to keep them alive under siege, the bad guy snuck in under the walls through the river, took the city, and killed the king as he slept in his bed. What he thought protected him only gave him false security because no one escapes judgment of God. The third warning, the third warning is that spiritual knowledge will not insulate us from the coming judgment. Not only will human achievement not protect us, but spiritual knowledge will not insulate us from the coming judgment. Since God speaks so plainly to warn us of the consequences of sin, why then do so many of us continue to ignore him? Like the Bible's really clear about the consequences of sin. So why is it that we continue to ignore him? When Daniel is called in by the king to interpret the writing on the wall, Daniel tells the king, that he knew all about the true God, that he knew all about the thing that God had done and taught his father, the king, before him. And yet still you have not humbled your heart. You knew all these things, and yet still you've done this. The clear message is that simple knowledge of God does not insulate or protect you from the consequences of an unrepentant life. So many people think of themselves as Christians because their parents were Christians or because they occasionally go to church, or because they grew up this way, or because they simply believe that there is a God. But the Bible reminds us that even the demons believe and shudder at the name of God. A casual belief in God does nothing to rescue us from the wrath to come. But also remember, this story is not written for the king's benefit. It is written to Israel, and it is written to us. It is written to the people of God. Why? It is a warning that even as God's people, we are not insulated from the consequences of our own sin. The New Testament tells us that God disciplines those he loves. 
You see, God in his love lets us sometimes experience the consequences of our actions because he wants us to know the damages in life destroying the reality that sin causes in our life so that we will realize the error and repent and flee like a parent who disciplines their child by causing pain in their life. It is that pain is given to a kid in order to keep them from the greater pain of doing the thing that we're trying to stop them from doing. It is loving for God to warn us of the consequences of sin because sin isn't, <laughs> sin isn't a bunch of rules that God has just made up to keep us from having fun. Sin isn't just like a random set of rules like, y'all do this to show me you really love me. No, sin is the very real reality that doing these things destroys lives and relationships. And God wants us to avoid those things and run toward him because he's leading us to abundant life. But the king, but the king he worships the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood. He worships instead the gods of his own making. The king continues in sin. Even though he knows the truth, he continues in sin because he trusted the gods he made up to protect him. And there are times, guys, that we do the same thing. Instead of submitting to God as he is, we adjust God in our own minds to fit the things we want to be able to do. And so we justify our actions by believing that since Jesus has died for my sins and since he will forgive me for whatever I ask him to forgive me for, I can live and do as I please. I can live however I want. Even if it's living in a way that God clearly forbids. We think in our minds, well, God doesn't want us to be, you know, like really, really bad. Right? He doesn't want us to be like really, really bad. But the ordinary sins, the things that, you know, that just like everybody does, they don't really matter. They don't really count because after all, I'm just human. And so we worship a God who doesn't so mind our continual use of pornography because after all, everybody does. We worship a God of our own making, after all, who doesn't really mind our gossip or our white lies or our temper or our anger at our brothers and sisters. Because after all, I'm just human. When we do this, we smear the truth of Jesus and his blood. And we foolishly believe that our spirituality will insulate us from the consequences of sin and the discipline of God. But do you remember when the handwriting appeared? It appeared as soon as the king drank from the vessels of God's temple. His wrath was revealed at the exact moment that what was intended to be kept holy was desecrated and used for sin. Do you know what the New Testament calls those who follow Jesus? His vessels. And God intends our lives to be vessels used and kept holy and used for his purposes. And when we use what God has spilled his own blood to make holy for unholy purposes, we should not imagine that we have any security against the discipline of God. Let us not be so foolish to think that we can take the shed blood of Jesus and smear it over continual greed, lust, and anger or any other sin so that we might do them without consequence. Yet how often do we, with the cross before our eyes, dip our hand into Christ's wounds to gather his blood to spread as insulation over our lives when we wish to continue in sin 
And when we do that, we look at God and say, in the midst of our sin, this makes it right, okay? This makes it okay, doesn't it? You really don't mind, do you, Father? When we behave this way, it shows just how much we do not understand how holy God is, how evil and vile and life-destroying sin is. Said we are like ignorant children who eat Tide Pods because we watched some kids on a video on the internet do it and thought, well, it looks fun, it must be fun, it's just soap, it can't really hurt us, can it? And then we end up in the ER. We don't listen. But God is saying, we're running toward a cliff, and he's saying, stop, run this way. So where do we go from here? All sin receives judgment. No human achievement can protect us. Spirituality cannot insulate us from its consequences. So how do we think about sin, about forgiveness in our life going forward? The cross, the cross teaches us how much God hates sin, but it also teaches how much he loves us. The cross is our north star, always centering us and grounding us and bringing us back to the truth. The cross teaches us how much God hates sin. It teaches us what he really thinks about sin and what he thinks about you. The cross shows us exactly what God thinks of sin. It shows us that sin is not something God takes lightly. It is not something that he sweeps under the rug. It's not something that he shrugs off and says, well, they're just being human after all. No, God looks at sin and his goodness cannot let him be silent. His goodness cannot let him do nothing. His goodness, his justice, his holiness demands that he act. And so he, the righteous judge, brings down the gavel. Sin matters so much to God that he must pour out his justice and wrath upon it on the cross. That is exactly what he does. The Bible describes the wrath of God in the New Testament when Jesus is in the garden as a cup, a cup full of wrath that he pours out. And he pours out every drop. He extinguishes his justice. He empties his anger. He flushes completely his wrath. He drains every last drop of punishment and judgment for sin. And all of it falls on Jesus. All of the wrath of God falls on God. Why? Because God hates sin. And sin must be judged and punished. But why did God pour it on himself and not on you where it rightly belongs? Because God loves you. And so he found a way to both continue to be good and bring justice and deliver you from that justice. God found a way to save you from himself. And that meant that God had to be judged for you. Understand, God needed to save you, not from the devil but from himself and his own righteousness and his own justice and his own judgment. It was not the devil who was going to judge you. It is God's holiness and goodness. And at the cross, he saves you from himself. Do you want to know how big of a deal sin is to God? Look at the cross where he deals with it. And if you want to know how big of a deal you are to God, look at the cross where he delivers you. My first point was that sin always leads to judgment. And that remains true. Even for Christians, your sin must be judged. The difference for Christians 
is that Jesus was judged for our sins so that we could be set free. So then where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? How do we live in light of these truths that sin always gets judged, but Jesus took it for us? First, the only hope to escape the coming judgment is faith in Christ and repentance from sin. Like, let's be really clear about that. If you are here this morning and you have a casual belief in God because of how you were brought up or how you are raised or because your Christians or your parents were Christians or because you go to church every now and again, do not trust in a watered-down fake spirituality. Do not trust in your own accomplishments. Do not feel insulated or protected because you think you're a good person because you are not. Your best works are filthy rags. Run to Jesus and he will save you from his own judgment. Second, Christians can rest and that there is now no condemnation for their sin, but we should flee sin because the consequences destroy lives. Romans 8.1 is clear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are free. Judgment has been satisfied. You are safe. Your eternal destiny is secure. But that does not mean that the consequences of sin are not still true and real in your life. God will discipline you. And like all discipline, it will not be fun. You cannot hide or play games with God. Your sins will find you out. He knows, he, lo- he knows who you are, and out of a love for you, he will expose your sin so that it stops hurting you or stops going down the road where it will hurt you more. We should not obey God and run from sin out of fear, but out of love and trust. God is leading us into life. He's trying to lead us into life. He is leading us into ultimate joy. He is trying to keep us from running away and running off the cliff into foolish living. Right now I'm reading the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And it's, uh, it's this wonderful book where a, uh, a senior demon is writing a letter to a junior demon on how to tempt this man who he's been assigned to. And so he's always writing him things like, hey, try this, do this, don't do that. Well, one of the things that we read re- recently, this fascinating part, is about how uh, he, he talks about, you know, he says the enemy, he's referring to God. He's saying, you know, we have never been able to invent a pleasure. Those are all the enemies doing. Those are all God's doing. We, he says, we, we've got some people working on that. They're trying to figure out how to invent a pleasure. But for now, until we do, all we can do is pervert or twist or, or distort the pleasures of God in order to mess with the human. We, all we can do is get them to take the pleasures that God made in the wrong way or the wrong time. You see, all pleasures are from God, invented by God. God wants us to have all of the pleasures, and yet we settle for the cheap substitutes, for the twisted pleasures, for the pleasures at the wrong time. Because the twisting is promising us life but only delivers death when God really wants us to have all of it. And so, trust the Lord that he made the world and he knows how it works. When he says don't do this because it's going to damage your life, no matter how fun it seems, no, it's going to damage your life. And run toward him as he is calling you to deeper joy. Third, 
let our reaction to sin be one of grief and not anger. Let our reaction to sin be one of grief and not anger. This is one I think we've really got to learn, and I've really got to learn this. There was a woman in a hospital who was, uh, had really bad cancer, and things were not looking well. And the doctors had come in to speak with her about her condition, to tell her all the things that were going on and all the things they could try and all the things they couldn't do. But as they tried to have this conversation with this cancer-ridden woman, she would never talk back. She would simply stare off into the distance. They would plead with her, you need to talk with us. We need to come up with a plan. We've got to figure this out. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. But we've got to make some decisions. But she would just stare off into the distance and she wouldn't talk back. And the doctors got frustrated and finally left the room and tried to convince their family to come in and talk with her, or friends to come talk with her. But any time they brought up the cancer or the decisions that needed to be made, she ignored them and looked off into the distance. One day, one of the nurses came in, and she saw that someone had sent snapdragons to her bedside. And These flowers, uh, you can pull the stems on them, and they kind of function like puppets. And she, this nurse began to tell this woman about how when she was a little kid, her, her and her sister would pull the stem and take these snapdragons and, you know, puppet kind of with them. And she took it, and to illustrate, she began to sing with this snapdragon the song, You Are My Sunshine. And she would sing this song to her, and... When she finished, the, the woman in the bed took two flowers, one in each hand, and she began to puppet them the same way. And, and in one hand, she, she puppeted one, and it was a mean doctor who was rough-sounding and said, your blood counts are too high, and there's nothing we can do for you, and you're going to die, and we've got to make decisions. Da, 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 da. And then she took the other one, and it was the voice of a, uh, an innocent young little girl who said, but you don't have to be so mean. I understand what you're saying. See, the message of her cancer and her coming death was too hard to be received directly. She couldn't hear it. But the flowers allowed her to put the message at a distance where it could be heard and received. And so how do we move the message of the warning of sin to a place where people can actually hear it? Hear the warning. We live in a world that has uh, tossed morality out the window. And so how do we communicate to the world in a way that they can hear it. And how do we communicate to Christians who have sometimes forsaken the truth to live how they want to? How do we put the warnings in a place that they can hear it? Often we think they will hear us by how outraged we are and how angry we are. And if we're louder, and the, the louder we are, and the more outraged and the more serious we are, then maybe they'll listen and take us seriously. I don't know why we think that. It's not working. It's never worked. And of course it doesn't work. Because what do you do when someone's angry at you? What do you do when someone is angry and yelling at you? You put a wall up. You put defenses up. And you say, I'm not listening. Daniel doesn't respond here with anger. He responds with grief. For more than 40 years, Daniel nurtured and loved and became God's instrument for change in the heart of Babylonians' mightiest king. But with one generation, all the work was undone. And in this account, he continues to direct us back toward Nebuchadnezzar, the, the old king. And his life and his humility and how he has changed. And he contrasts that king with the new king, his pride and his defiance and his wickedness. Daniel was grieving all that had been gained and lost in one generation. And his grief 
doesn't it reflect God's own grief over sin? Remember when Jesus said oh, to Israel, oh Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you like a mother hen with her chicks. But you would not come. You see, it is not our anger that will help the world see wickedness. It is our tears. Are our friends and family members wandering away from the truth because they think that we might just get mad because they no longer hold to our dogma? They run away because they think, yeah, they'll just get mad because we've stopped conforming to their rules. But what if they knew that it wasn't that it just made us mad, that we, they broke some of our rules, but that it broke our hearts. Because we love them so much, we don't want to see them destroy their lives by something that is promising them false happiness. What if they saw our tears because we wanted the best for them? You see, it is easy to dismiss anger. It's hard to dismiss tears. Are we grieving over sin or are we complacent with it? Do we look at our own sin or the sin of others and we just think, oh, no big deal? Or do we just get really angry about it? You see, guys, until the church learns to express grief as eloquently as it vents rage, we shall have little power over sin. Blaming is easier than grieving. Wagging your finger is easier than grieving. Anger is easier than tears. The news and social media and everything in your life is trying to make you angry, and it's working. It wants to make you outraged, and it's working. And it is pushing people where they can no longer hear the warnings. That as they run toward the cliff, they can't hear you. Because everything is outrage, and everything is anger. But what if they saw your heartbreak instead? What if they saw your tears and said, I don't know. Maybe they just might listen for a moment. Maybe they would think, maybe this person actually cares about me. And not just that I don't conform to their thing. Maybe they actually care about me. And they actually believe that me doing this is going to hurt me. Maybe I should stop and consider that for a moment. Do you remember when we went through Romans, what God's worst punishment is, what his worst judgment is? God's worst judgment is to let someone go, to let them be in their sin, to give them over to themselves. And so the warnings of sin, the warnings of judgment, they're not mean. They're not harsh. They're the most loving thing we can do to warn people, this will destroy your life, but this will give you new life. By showing those warnings through anger, it just makes us feel better. When we get angry and outraged about things, it just makes us feel good. Because we stood for something. A righteous indignation. But it does nothing to change people. It just pushes people further into their vices, further into their opinions, and further away from the truth. But tears and grief help people see that we love them. And we hurt for them. And we mean these warnings not to hurt them, but to rescue them. So let's hear the warnings. God in our own life and let's help others hear the warnings let's put them at a place where they can actually hear them and see them not by our outrage but by our tears on the night Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it because that very night his body would be broken as he was judged for our sin 
Then he took wine and he made everyone drink it as a symbol that he would pour out his blood, just like the wine was poured out, and that he would take sin's penalty, death, in our place. This morning, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together as a reminder that sin always leads to judgment. But we were spared because someone else was judged in our place. If you're here this morning and you belong to Jesus, we will take this feast together as a reminder that sin has been dealt with, judgment has been handed out, and you've been set free. But if you are here this morning and you are a parent of a little one, of a child who has yet been baptized, who has not been baptized as a believer, this is not a time for them. Even if they're questioning, even if they're close, this is not a time for them. This is not a meal for them. This is a meal for those who are Christians, who have followed Jesus. And kids who have not placed their faith in Jesus and repented for their sins are not Christians. They can be cute, they can be sweet, but they are not Christians. One day, they must believe the promises of the gospel for themselves. And so, let the cup pass in front of them as a witness and a testimony that one day when they believe, they too can partake of the blood of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've not taken hold of Christ, maybe you've been religious, maybe you've had casual belief in God, maybe you've come to church, but you have not taken hold of Christ, run toward him this morning. Run to him. He will take you in his arms. As we hear in a moment, we have stations in each corner. As we sing this song, get up at your own convenience and walk to one of these stations. Take the juice and the cracker and bring it back to your seat. And on your own time, take it. Pray over it, think over it, sing over it, reflect over it, and take it whenever you're ready. But if you don't belong to Jesus, don't take a hold of this. The Bible warns that if you take this in the wrong way, you you read judgment on yourself. Don't take this if you don't belong to Jesus. Instead, I'm going to stand right here. You come talk to me and say, Brent, how do I take hold of Christ? And let me show you how he'll take hold of you. Let's pray. Father, this morning we're grateful and thankful for your goodness and kindness and patience and love toward us. We're grateful that you are a God who is good and does not let wrongs go unpunished. But we're also grateful that you loved us enough to let our wrongs be punished in the body of someone else. Whose body was broken and whose blood was poured out so that our body could be made new and that our blood could continue to flow. God, this morning, let us celebrate and remember the good God who let justice flow but saved us. And Father, for those in this room who do not know you, do not trust you, maybe they've been religious, but they've never given their lives to you as King and Lord and repented and turned from their sin. God, this morning, let them come and be made new. Give them the courage to come talk with me. Father, we love you so much. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, let's stand together and please to go as soon as you're ready.